Well, good morning, Bethel. I am going to be singing that last song all day, and that's a good thing. Love that song. Uh, Would you just bow in prayer uh, with me? We're going to go before the Lord. We have the privilege of studying His Word, privilege that the Holy Spirit is within us. We want to ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, Uh, certainly not me, um, but that He would speak to us through His Word. So let's pray. Our Father, indeed we know because of your word and your Son and your Holy Spirit that we do need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Uh, For there is no hope in this world, this world which is perishing, except that which you have secured by the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom was poured the sins of those who believe. We know that his death was big enough for all of the sins of the world and yet only to those who look to him in saving faith. Will your wrath for sin be poured out on Christ as the substitute? We do need to turn our eyes upon Jesus, both in salvation, uh, eternal salvation, justification, but also in the living of the life that is in front of us, for he is our teacher and Lord also. So thank you, uh, God, that you are not distant and aloof, far away, unknowable, but that you sent the person of your Son, God the Son, to take on human flesh as our sacrifice and as an example for the life that we are to aspire to. We say thank you, and yet those words are thin. So may we live lives of thanks and worship. Teach us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, we're plodding along in our series here, True False. True False. We're going to look at 10 verses today. Uh, Did you know that the average four-year-old asks 437 questions a day. Some moms were like, yeah. In fact, when I heard that, like many of you, I thought, no, they're underestimating it. It's more. I believe it's more. That's what I remember when our kids were four. And kids have a way of asking um, kind of blunt questions, too. You know, they're not all grown up where they nuance them and ask them at the right times or in the right ways. They just say it. They just say stuff like, hey, where do babies come from? Right? Dad's, I don't know, ask your mom. (laughs) Why is the sky blue? Because God made it that way is the answer. And the answer to all questions, it's the greatest piece of advice we got in parenting, was that answer. Because God made it that way. Where did all the unicorns go? You know, quit watching TV. That's That's the answer. And then, you know, serious questions come along. Hey, where do we go when we die? Okay? Or maybe even more specifically or personally or emotionally, where's grandma now? Uh, Kids have a way of asking questions, and our kids ask these at bedtime. I don't know about yours. They became philosophers and theologians at bedtime, wondering all kinds of things. (coughs) And oftentimes they are delay tactics. But sometimes they're sincere. 
And sometimes they're really curious. And even if they're not, it's the right question. I'm going to give them a long answer. You know, I'll put them to bed. Those last two questions we looked at, what happens when we die? Or where is grandma now? Uh, these are questions that are essentially asking for a theology of life and death. Uh, they deserve an answer. And Paul answers these questions in the text that we're looking at today. So you want to pay attention to this so you don't have to say, I don't know, ask your mom. Right? So look with me in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read all 10 verses and then we'll start picking at it a little bit. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. First thing we need to acknowledge here, uh, right out of the gates, is that Paul is primarily talking about the body here. Uh, He's not talking so much about exchanging this present earth for a future heaven someday. When he refers to a tent or a temporary dwelling, that is replaced by a building, a permanent dwelling. He is referring to the exchanging of our earthly mortal bodies for a future glorified body. That's the flow of his uh, teaching here. And that can be more easily uh, discerned as we kind of look into the second uh, paragraph that we just covered, verses 6 through 10. You notice where he uses the word body four times. That's what he's talking about. You can also see it if you just back up and look at the context. If you remember where we were last week, if you were here with us, we talked about this great passage that we have this treasure, the gospel, in these jars of clay, these human vessels, these earthly bodies, which are useful, but they're fragile, right? And so Paul is talking about here, he is encouraging his listeners that in spite of the afflictions of life and the limits of of our present state in these earthly bodies, we are taught that we have this greatness awaiting us, the greatness of our eternal state. And this future body uh, that we receive in heaven, Paul says, is not built by human hands. In other words, it's not just a biological reality. Our bodies here on earth are simply, they simply inherit the genetics, right, of our parents and our grandparents. But the body that we inherit in heaven will be a new vehicle, so to speak, for your soul. One that is fashioned by God, not just the result of genetic parents. Uh, In other words, and I kind of want to be careful here too, because I don't want to 
sort of diss the value of our present bodies because our, our present earthly biological bodies are amazing. The psalmist says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Uh, he says that we're knit together in our mother's womb. My wife is a knitter, and I'm amazed at what she can produce with sticks and yarn, right? Just with carefully alternating stitch, pearl, knit pearl. I said stitch, knit pearl. She, if she was here, she'd roll her eyes something fierce at me. Knit pearl, knit pearl, 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 knit, whatever. And just by alternating the sequence of this uh, can produce some amazing things, you know, baby booties and hats and sweaters and she makes them, and I look at them, and I think, that would tie me in knots to do that, you know? Um, it's a beautiful word that the psalmist uses here, that we're knit. Knit together in our mother's womb. And um, I was thinking about this this week, just sort of how amazing our bodies are. Um, I have a little cut on my finger, my pinky finger here. And you know what? In about four or five days, that little cut's going to be gone. Because my body's going to heal it. Our bodies have self-healing properties, which is amazing. Uh, think about just your heart, just this organ in your chest. Uh, I'm 42. I'm going to be 43 in about a month. And I was thinking about this. and I, I have this organ in my chest that has been working perfectly for over 40 years. It's never taken a day off, thankfully. I didn't have to do any maintenance to it yet. I don't have a power tool or a machine in my world that's 40 years old. Do you know what I mean? When we first got married, Amy's dad bought us a lawnmower. So I have a 20-year-old, we're getting ready to celebrate our 20th anniversary, a 20-year-old Toro lawnmower with a Briggs & Stratton engine. And this will be its last year. Because I'm about to ruin my shoulder trying to start this thing now. It only lasted 20 years. <clears throat> but God has given me a heart that will last a lifetime. I got 40 good years out of it. I'm hoping for at least another 40, right? Our bodies are amazing. And I comment about this because, unfortunately, we live in a day and an age and a climate that is demeaning the sanctity of life, both in the elderly and in the unborn, and I have a problem with that, and you should have a problem with that. Because we live in a culture that has the gall to call a baby in a mother's womb simply unwanted tissue. New York's recent decision to allow for late-term abortion should bring outrage upon outrage for all of us. The sanctity of life begins at conception, and we need to advocate for that in our cultural values and in our nation's laws and our state laws. And, and we need to support those moms who courageously bring into the world an unplanned baby. Uh, or as we like to say at home, the sanctity of life is from womb to tomb. There are too many Christians who are simply pro-life, pro-fetus, pro-birth, and then an unexpected pregnancy comes along and they're nowhere to be found. And the church had better get those gals' backs when they make that courageous decision. So I can't avoid this comment just given where we are right now. In fact, if you want to 
take up that fight and be helpful with that, you can um, check out CareNet Pregnancy Center here in town. This is a ministry we've supported for decades. And I don't want to get detoured here. But the point of our passage is that as amazing as these present bodies are, they are frail. They are limited, as we explored last week. But even these amazing bodies will pale in comparison to the glorified bodies that we will receive in the eternal state. Those will be bodies to die for, as I like to say. Think about it. Now you got it. Bodies to die for. Think of all of the unfortunate traits that you have inherited from your parents. This could be a fun dinner conversation for you today, right? I inherited my dad's short legs, and I'm still annoyed about that. I also inherited my grandfather's hairline, which is dynamic, as you can see. I also inherited my mother's thick fingernails, which are kind of useful for opening things uh, and really useful for fouling in basketball. The guys that I play with know when I foul them because they're bleeding, you know. They also say that intelligence comes from the mom's side. So I give that to you as a bit of ammunition. When you're at home and you watch your kid and he's doing something stupid, you can say, do you know he gets his intelligence from you? Uh, We inherit all kinds of things that you know. Eye color, skin tone, heart disease, susceptibility to cancer. In other words, much of what composes our earthly bodies can be traced back to, even predicted by the genetics of our parents and grandparents, sort of these inherited traits. But in contrast, our heavenly bodies, our glorified bodies, will not be just the result of genetics or the reproduction of parents, but specifically crafted by God himself. That's exciting. And if you're not sitting there with a smile on your face, you're not thinking about it. I look forward to that body. So we're assured that we will have glorified bodies. And with the comparison of this tent to a building, Paul is highlighting for us the enduring nature of our future bodies in contrast to the corruptible nature of these present bodies. Our current bodies age, right? Not looking at anyone, you know. My knees hurt now after playing basketball. I've crossed the threshold there. I have lost my hair. Uh, I have lost a bit of energy. I'm not as strong or as athletic as I once was, or at least remember being. First service, I told everybody I was turning 44, and I'm actually turning 43. I can't even remember my age. (laughs) I can't sleep through the night without having to get up at least once. Can I get an amen to that, fellas? Our bodies, our future bodies, however, will not be made by human hands. They will not be subject to entropy and decay or aging or failing. And they will not be simply the result of genetic parents. Our glorified bodies will be the handiwork of Almighty God. And I think we get some hints of what the glorified body will be like when we look at um, the resurrected Jesus on earth prior to his ascension and those weeks between his resurrection and his ascension. We see some fascinating things about him. And I will say this at the outset, 
I think these are hints of what the glorified body will be like. I don't think this is necessarily the full picture. I'm still chewing on that a little bit. That's another discussion for another day. But at least some hints of what our glorified bodies will be like. We see that Jesus in his resurrected state before he ascended was able to eat and not eat. And that sounds like heaven right there. Yes, I will have another piece of bread and butter. Bring it on, you know, (laughs) keep it coming. That sounds great. He had the ability to sort of appear and disappear, which also sounds very handy at Fred Meyer, right? (laughs) You get to the end of the aisle, and you look down, and you think, oh, no, I'm not ready to see that person right now. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if you could just, boom, over in produce section? (laughs) Jesus had the ability to pass through doors without that physical limitation, but at the same time able to be touched and held. He was able to be on earth completely and yet ascend to heaven and be present with the Father. He was recognizable in some occasions, but indistinguishable in others. And doesn't that sound great to all you introverts, right? Oh, shield's up, can't see me, you know. Um, and so again, I would just suggest that these post-resurrection features of Christ's body are probably hints of what's coming, potentially something less, either because the disciples' limited perception of Christ in their own humanity, or perhaps even because Jesus just wasn't fully manifesting all of the glory. I, I don't know. I say that open-handed. And I can't prove this either. What I'm about to say is speculation, so take it with a grain of salt. Okay, everybody? Open hands, grain of salt, speculation. But I wonder if part of the glorification of our future bodies will simply increase the capacity to experience God as he is and therefore worship him as we will. I wonder if we're not simply given a greater apparatus with which to perceive him and to more adequately worship him. So I I wonder... Uh, let me illustrate it this way. I, I do love the game of basketball, if I haven't said that before. I do. Um, I think I would love it even more if I had Michael Jordan's body. <laughs> right? Because right now, if I get really competitive or intense and I decide to go to the hole, it's a power layup. But you know what I'm saying? What about, like, I want to beat this guy right now, and I go to the hole and just dunking on him and then wave the Christian finger at him and taunt him, right? I think that sounds great. And I think I would enjoy the game more if I could do that. Um, I love my God. I love my Lord. And I think I would worship him even better. If I had a capacity, a bodily capacity to appreciate him and engage in him and experience him, if I had a mind to comprehend him, if I had a body that could be in his presence without shrinking back, if I had a voice that could hit octaves that I don't even know about, if I had a mind to grasp concepts that right now elude me, like his holiness, what if I had a body that allowed me to do acts of service that I thought were really worthy of our Lord? Do you see what I'm saying? I just, I'm just wondering about this. What if part of our glorified bodies, what if it's not just new and improved for our benefit, 
but truly improved through and through to be an instrument for worship, a body that could live with God, you know? For we know that if the earthly tent we lived in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, amen to that, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. I'm gonna pause right there. I love the way Paul rounds out this section here. He takes this uh, common idiom and he reverses it, right? Did you notice that? This, this phrase, we might hear somebody say something like, that life has been swallowed up in death. We might say such a thing, uh, such a thing when we see an untimely death of someone we know or we love. This life, with all of its potential, was swallowed up in death. Death being this devouring beast, right, that consumes all of us. And yet what Paul does is he turns it around. He says, he says that instead we have this mortal, uh, what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Instead of Death closing in, life opens up. Instead of closure, there is enlarging. What is good gets better. What is wonderful gains in wonder. What is swallowed up is not confined but unleashed in life. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's a good picture. Something good taken over by something much greater. Uh, something also that really struck me this week when I was um, just kind of studying and reflecting on this text is um, the statement that this future glorified body is actually the purpose for which we were made. Uh, in other words, a glorified body is not just a consolation prize for someone who has unfortunately died, but the purpose for which we were made, the telos, what God had intended all along. Because I think sometimes our language betrays sort of the fact that we think what is coming is somehow less than our earthly experience now. Uh, for example, we use the word the afterlife. Doesn't that sort of convey that this is life and that's like something else? You know, sort of like this was the concert and that's the encore. When in fact this is the prelude and that's the symphony. Um, I think actually if you surveyed people, even Christians, and asked them if they were looking forward to heaven or to the afterlife, uh, I'm, I think most Christians would say, sure, <laughs> or not really, because they like things on earth like chocolate, coffee, a good ride on the four-wheeler, sun on the skin, which we'll feel in a few weeks. Uh, or the sound of my skis on a freshly groomed trail. There's some cool things in this life, and that's what we're acquainted with. And unfortunately, I think too often the description of heaven, it just sounds like a never-ending church service. And to most people, that sounds like hell, right? <laughs> I don't want that. 
But nothing could be further from the truth. A glorified body is not some kind of consolation prize for those who have died. Some little encore. It's the purpose for which we were made. This is a detour. That's home. You were made for it. You will love it. It is beyond your wildest imaginations, even now. Our heavenly bodies will facilitate a more fully orbed integration with God in his coming kingdom. And we won't just be observers. We will be participants actively engaged with him in ruling and reigning the world being as it ought to be. It will be lovely. So our eternal state with these glorified bodies is not less than this earthly life or these earthly bodies, but in every way much greater. And Paul means to encourage us with this and to give us hope. Thirdly here, the Christian is confident of their inheritance because of the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Um, back in December, <coughs> excuse me, um, I bought a new-to-me used truck from a dealer here in town, and I've already told you about this a little bit. And I was sort of bartering uh, with the dealer, sort of over the price, as I do, and um, I had gone in a number of times. I looked at it and left. I looked at it again and lingered and then asked a few questions and left. I went and looked at it and got inside of it and test drove it and left. I did that twice. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of doing this and they're trying to build up my incremental commitment towards a purchase and I'm trying to whittle them down on the price, you know, so we're playing the game. And uh, anyways, I had made up my mind that I wanted this truck and trying to be careful not to convey that in my face. Yeah, it's all right, you know. Um, I knew what, what price I was willing to pay and I was pretty sure I could get him down to it. And so I sat down uh, with the fella and we worked it all out and um, uh, even had some signed documents, but I ran out of time that I had set aside for this and I had to leave. And uh, so I, I told him, hey, I'll come back at the end of the day and button this all up. What I didn't know was that when I walked out the door, they basically considered that truck up for sale to anyone who wanted it. And um, even though in my mind we had a verbal agreement, I signed documents. I've test drove it twice. Until there was an exchange of funds, all of those other commitments were basically meaningless to them. Uh, and so it actually turns out that somebody else in town, some other dude showed up and drove my truck, <laughs> fully expecting to buy it. But then he had to leave before he, he could put any money on it. And so he left. So somewhere there's a guy in town, heartbroken, telling this same story, except that he lost his truck to someone who swooped in and bought it out from under him. Um, I was like unaware this was all happening and I'm really glad for that because to be honest, I was sort of put out after the fact to realize that what I thought was an agreement you know, was not in their mind and this was just up for grabs. And I was a little disappointed to hear how insecure that agreement was. And all of that could have, of course, been avoided if I had simply put down some funds, right? A deposit, earnest money, something that would... Uh, uh, secure sort of a full and final transaction. And that is what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit. He has secured a future 
transaction. Funding it now by the deposit of the Holy Spirit. We're told elsewhere that the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, And you were included, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit who has been placed in your life seals you in the family of God. He's not just a perk. He is a deposit guaranteeing and securing a glorious future, including bodies to die for. That's a good thing. Second main point, and I promise you, now we're going to pick up the pace, so don't worry. We're given some comfort about what we might call the intermediate state. That might be a new term to you, the intermediate state. Basically, this just refers to the condition of mankind between death and glorification. And there's a gap there. Uh, Look at verse 6 here. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident... I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So I think it's easy to miss here, but actually Paul is basically addressing the question that your four-year-old either has asked or will ask, right? Where is grandma now? And this discusses the intermediate state. That is, if the glorification of our bodies comes when Christ returns and raises the dead, And all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, as the scriptures say, are then raised and glorified. Then what happens to those who die before that bodily resurrection and glorification? In what state are we between death and that moment? That's the intermediate state. And there are a lot of um, answers to this, and I've kind of given them to you on the back of your handout if you want to look through them. First one I'm not really going to address because it's stupid. Uh, It's ghosts. So we're just and wave her hand and wave that off. The second one uh, is, is sort of an unconscious waiting for the resurrection, or some people call it soul sleep. And this is held by Jehovah's Witness and Seventh-day Adventists. The problem with this view is quite simply this, that it contradicts the very clear words of Jesus Christ. When to the thief on the cross next to him, he says what? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so there are at least two clear teachings here contrary to that view. Both Jesus, pretty clear, and Paul here, that to be away from the body is what? Be present with the Lord, to be with him. And the description of that experience with him is paradise. So I think that really defeats that position. Uh, Another position is held by the Catholic Church. It's purgatory. And it basically teaches uh, that unbelievers go immediately to hell. But others who are in a state of grace but not yet perfected go to purgatory or what they would identify as sort of this middle state to be cleansed of venial sins and that that can be done by their own work and by the works of others for them. Things such as going to mass or prayers or good works. And the problem with that view is that a couple of things. Number one, it emerges from what we as Protestants would call apocryphal writings, particularly 2nd Maccabees. It doesn't fit within the 66 books of the canon that we affirm. Uh, The other problem with it is this, the concept of purgatory involves 
salvation by works, which is absolutely contrary to the gospel of grace. We find this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by, say it, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Couldn't be more explicit. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, so that there we're to do them, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so contrary to the Catholic doctrine, we see that we do good works, we're made for them, but they are not the basis of our salvation. The basis of our salvation is the grace of God. And so this might leave us with some questions about the intermediate state or what the nature of mankind is like in that that state. But what we are assured of is, I think, by Jesus and Paul here, um, that upon the death, upon death, the believer is with the Lord in paradise. And we're assured that there's an immediacy to that. (coughs) So the answer is here, between death and glorification, we're with the Lord. And that's described as paradise. That brings us to our last point. um, And that is this. We are inspired, I think, about the significance of our present state. I mean, Paul's just capturing all of the timeline here, isn't he? The eternal state, the intermediate state, and the state you're in right now. And so he kind of wraps up this uh, assertion here, uh, showing us that this is more than just abstract theology. But this has bearing upon how we live in the here and now. Look at verse 9. So we make it our goal. To please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. In other words, what we do in the body will be judged. And this particular judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, also known as the Bema seat, uh, is a time where we are judged for reward. Uh, There's a whole lot of uh, confusion about future judgments, and I don't have time to lay it all out here. But I want to at least be very clear that there is a distinction between the the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20 and the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ here. One is about judging destinies. The other is about determining awards, rewards. So let me just read the passage in Revelation 20, if you want to turn there. We'll, we'll see kind of a glimpse of what this uh, great white throne of judgment is like. It's sobering. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead uh, that were in it, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. Anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What we see here is that at this judgment, a determination of either heaven or hell is made based upon one's response to the gospel, based upon one's position to Jesus Christ. If they have not taken refuge 
uh, in Christ for the coming wrath of God and for their sins, then the guilt of their sins is still upon them and will be judged at this point. That is what is happening at the great white throne. It is the judgment determining destinies based on one's response to the gospel. But what's pictured here in 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat of Christ, is a happy occasion, as one scholar has called it. A happy occasion. In fact, he went on, Murray Harris said this, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ is the privilege of Christians. That's what I want you to think about when you hear this, Christian, not, oh no, they're going to get out the big jumbotron and just work through my life here. You know? Eric Johns, here we are, 14 years old in Apple Valley, California. What's, what's, uh, what's, what's going on here in this scene? It's not a bringing all of my sins back to account before an audience of all. My sins have been punished in Christ. And God doesn't remember them against me. What he promises to remember at the Bema seat of Christ is those things which have been done in the body for good or for ill, and those which have been done for good will be rewarded. It's an award ceremony. Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 3, you know, a letter to the same uh, group of believers here, he says that a believer may suffer loss in this assessment. And I think that is simply an awareness that, boy, I could have done more. Uh, If you've seen that movie Schindler's List, there's a really poignant moment in there where this man who has saved so many uh, from just the atrocities of Nazi Germany And he has saved so many Jews, rescued them uh, out of sort of funding it by his own pocket. And sort of at the very end of it all, when he's got to leave and there's no safe harbor anymore, he has to leave and he looks at his hand and he realizes he still has this pin of great value. Do you remember this? And he sort of asks the question, what more could I have done? What could I have done with this? Could, Could this have helped to free and release even more than I have already saved? So on the one hand, you know, his heart is full for all that he's done. On the other hand, there's a sense of, I could have, maybe, maybe I could have done more. Um, Samuel Hoyt has made the best comment about this, about the judgment seat of Christ. I want to read this uh, excerpt to you. He says, the judgment seat of Christ may be compared to a commencement ceremony. A grad- at graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated, and they're grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. The Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians here is for evaluating what is worthy of reward. And God offers that to us as incentives for faithfulness in this life. And so let me conclude by just saying this. This is a great passage. If you're a Christian, if you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, this is a great passage. You are given every confidence and every assurance that in the eternal state, Though now we live in these frail bodies in a difficult world, in the eternal state, we have bodies to die for. In the intermediate state, between the time of our death and that ultimate resurrection, it's all good because we're going to be with the Lord 
immediately. And being in his presence is described as paradise. And in this present state, what we do matters. What you do matters. It is not inconsequential how you live your life. But God has enticed you with the opportunity for rewards in heaven for living faithfully in the body. Let's pray. Lord, this is good news, theology of life and death. Whether we think we're at the end of our life or in the middle or just getting off. We understand. We just, we're just living in a tent. We're just camping in these bodies. But we have an eternal home, a building from God. Not the result of just earthly parents, but the specific handiwork of Almighty God. And we do long for that, Lord. We're comforted by knowing that in the intermediate state, we're with you in its paradise. So in light of those great truths that we're told, God, help us to be faithful in this life. Faithful today to live in obedience as your disciples, to be your ambassadors as though heaven and hell were real and the gospel made the difference. May it be on our lips. May it be lived in our lives. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.